of the way the question has been put. So the, the, the view of aging from people who are not really old or who are, you know, beginning to transition is really different from the people who are really old, like I am 80. <laughs> So, and, and that's why we, we we love this perspective of yours. So um, that's why we opened up the phone lines for that. Yeah. So so I I organized a group of aging people when I turned seventy seven, and we're and that was three years ago, and we're still meeting monthly, and and I'm in some other Zoom groups that meet to deal with uh, various issues, and. Old people don't worry about those things, <laughs> you know. This we is... we don't we don't really care so much about how we look. We're not trying to attract anybody. That's long gone. Mm. But we do care about each other. We do care about how we're doing. We do care about the extent to which we're able to still be creative and to be engaged in the world. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the issues, because as uh, you know, previous caller was saying, as you get older, there's less that you're, you're capable of doing. But um, in terms of those attitudes about staying young-looking and being attractive and all that, that that's, that's really not meaningful in terms of people who are truly <laughs> older than uh, those who are anxious about what it's going to be like. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Well, we really appreciate you calling, Camilla. We are just about out of time here on The Gap. I think we'll have to revisit this idea of aging and being seen sometime in the future. We really appreciate everybody calling. Wear your sunscreen. Uh, You don't owe beauty to anybody. Not at all. We'll see you next week. Yes, coming up next is Arab Voices. Uh, Be kind to one another. We are all that we've got. For surezies. See you next time. Bye. and welcome to another episode of Arab Voices coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. This show is syndicated and it airs on other radio stations in different cities in the U.S. In this episode of Arab Voices, episode number 1001, I will have two segments. First, I will air part two of the interview Arab Voices guest host Hanan Awad conducted with Dr. Suad Al-Amri, an award-winning Palestinian architect, writer, community leader, and founding director of Rewaq, the Center for Architectural Conservation in Ramallah, Palestine. In that interview, Hanan explores with Suad her journey as a Palestinian architect, writer, and community leader. Last week, I aired part one of that interview, which is archived on our website, arabvoices.net. During the second segment, I will air the remarks delivered by Paul Norsey with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights on the topic, The Victorious Battle for the First Amendment Against Virginia's Anti-Boycott Bill. Paul delivered that talk at the annual 2022 Israel Lobby Conference held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 2022.
Last week on this program, I aired part one of the interview Arab Voices guest host Hanan Awad conducted with Dr. Saad Al-Amri, an award-winning Palestinian architect, writer, community leader, and founding director of Rewaq, the Center for Architectural Conservation in Ramallah, Palestine. Part one is already archived on our website, arabvoices.net. In this episode of Arab Voices, I will air part two of that interview in which Hanan continues to explore with Saad her journey as a Palestinian architect, writer, and community leader. Let's listen in. Well, I'm going to take you back to Ramallah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, take the audience to how Saad became the writer, the storyteller, and the novelist. Um, in 2002, Israeli invasion into the West Bank was one of the largest attacks against Palestine since 1967 war. And at that time, you were living in Ramallah city. And your novel, Sharon and my mother-in-law, or Sharon Hamati, is considered by many to be your first novel to reach international acclaim, having been translated to over 19 different languages. Can you tell me about writing this novel under curfew as well as your reaction towards the worldwide recognition after this novel. Yeah, sure. You know, I studied architecture and I came to Palestine to do my thesis on Palestinian village architecture. So I'm all my life, I functioned and thought as an architect. I also established the Center for Architectural Conservation and wrote books in uh, on architecture. And I never, never really thought of myself writing novels or writing non-architectural books until uh, thanks to Sharon and my mother-in-law, actually both of them. As you mentioned in 19, in 2002 and 2003, Sharon reoccupied Ramallah and put us under curfew. At that time, my husband, Salim Tamari was traveling abroad and I was on my own. And my mother-in-law was 91 years old at that time, and she was also living on her own, thanks God. And she was living, she was uh, living close to, uh, her house was very close to the Muqata'a, where Arafat was bombarded day and night, if you recall. Anyway, they would impose the curfew for three, four days. They will not allow us to go out of the house, but after three or four days, they opened the market and allow 70,000 people to go shopping all together. So it was like a madhouse. To make a long story short, I decided that I should go and get my mother-in-law to come and stay with me. And after three trials, because it was difficult to reach to her, I succeeded in having my mother-in-law come to live with me. And I always jokingly say I ended up with two occupations, (laughs) one inside the house, and one outside the house, one with Sharon and one with my mother-in-law. And, you know, my mother-in-law is a very intelligent, creative person, but very, very, very organized. And when you are put under curfew for 44 days, you don't know what day of the week it is, what hour of the day it is. So she was very frustrated with me because I am not following the eight o'clock breakfast, the one o'clock lunch. So anyway, we had a lot of mother-in-law and daughter-in-law fights about sugar, about milk, about this and that. <laughs> so, Hanal, it was really very difficult for both of us. I understand. <laughs> so what I did was the following. She went to bed early. Uh, so I started writing actually emails to friends, to three or four friends, 
And I asked them not to share the emails with anybody because I was making fun of my mother-in-law. So one night I would write about what Sharon did for the city of Ramallah when they opened the, uh, the uh, curfew and the destruction we see. Uh, so I would write about the, the Israeli occupation and what it means for us living under occupation and under curfew. And the other day I would write what happened between me and my mother-in-law at what, what was the point in which we fought. And I send those emails to friends. It happens to arrive to Luisa Morgantini, one of the Palestinian, Italian Palestinians, who was the vice president of the European Union. And she reads it and she calls me right away, Saad, I need to make copies to all members of parliament. I said, you must be kidding. Why would they be interested in my mother-in-law and I fighting over sugar and how we make or don't make marmalade? <laughs> Anyway, she sent it to a publisher in Italy. And next thing I know that the Italian publisher calls me and tells me want to buy all world's rights. And Hanan, believe me, I had no clue what world's rights were, you know, as an architect, I don't even know that expression. But that expression meant that they want to buy all the languages, the right to publish it in all languages. So anyway, overnight, from not being an architect, I have a book, as you mentioned, that was translated into 20 languages. And here I am, by pure accident, became a writer. And my publisher kept asking me, okay, we need another book from you, another book from you. And here I am with my number six or seven uh, books. So I became a writer by pure accident. Amazing. Um, I have to say that I read that novel um, twice and I went through it more than a couple of times. And the story that I always um, am amazed me is the dog and the checkpoint. Uh, <laughs> can, can you you just... know that, that story was published in a magazine in America. I think the book, the magazine is called uh, Bark or something like this. And it sold around 100,000 copies, not because of the dog, Nora, but because of people, how much they like dogs. Tell me, tell me uh, briefly about Nora and your experience with her. Okay, my, uh, the, the story that people like, and I also like actually, is that I, uh, I love animals in general. My mother loved animals, so we had lots of animals at home. And uh, so I uh, ended up having a dog. At first, I had a ballad dog, a, a stray dog, uh, which I took to a vet in Ramallah, Hisham, his name. And the vet was really very, very unprofessional because when he knew that the dog was a she and that she was a, a stray dog or street dog, whatever you call it, he didn't want to spend the $25. He said, are you crazy? So I was so annoyed by him. Anyway, to make a long story short, days, years later, I acquired this little uh, Nora, this little dog, which was a Manchester Terrier. It had a very good breed, but still it was a female uh, doc, uh, dog. So I decided I'm not going to go to Sham. So I asked people around, do you know of any other uh, vet in Ramallah or in Jerusalem? And a friend of mine says, so I know one, but uh, you know, she happened to be Israeli. And so I told them, no, 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 I'm not going to take my dog. I personally don't go to Israeli doctors, let alone to take my dog to an Israeli doctor. 
And my dog, Noura, looked at me and said, Mom, but I have nothing to do with this political situation. You know, I am not Palestinian. I'm not Israeli. I am, um, you know, I am just a dog. And so she convinced me eventually I go to the Israeli doctor and she treats her very nicely. She happened to be a British uh, Israeli doctor. And in the meanwhile, she goes out and comes back with a document and the document said passport on it. And I looked at Noura and I said, Noura, guess what? You're going to get a passport. And the doctor told me, do you have a photo? And so I said, my photo, jokingly, I wanted to put my photo <laughs> on, the, on, on uh, the passport. And then I explained to Noura, Noura Habibti, you are going out. Ah, the doctor tells me, Saad, when you go to the airport, make sure to take the passport with you. So I look at Noura, I say, Noura Habibti, do you realize that you are getting your document that five and a half million Palestinians, including your mom, will kill for? You are going to have a document that will allow you to go to Jerusalem and also go to occupied territories and also go to the airport. And she looks at me, yeah, mama, I told you, I told you I have nothing to do with it. Anyway, I take Noura and I take her passport and I drive my car. If I go left, I go to Ramallah. If I go right, I go to the checkpoint, Kalandia checkpoint. At that point, Hanan, if a Palestinian like me wanted to go to Jerusalem, you needed a permit for yourself, a permit for your car, because our plates, car plates are blue and the Israelis are yellow. Anyway, I told her, Noura, let's play this game. Let's go to Jerusalem. So I reached the checkpoint. And of course, when they see the plate, the Israeli soldiers come around the car and they come to me with their gun. The gun is pointed at my face. And he says, where are you going? I said, to Jerusalem. He says, do you have a permit? I said, no, I don't have a permit. Does your car have a permit? I look at him and no, my car doesn't have a permit. So he said, how do you expect to go to Jerusalem? And then I told him, ah, there is one thing you don't know. Noura, come here. She comes and sits in my lap and she wiggles at him with her big ears. And I told him, well, meet Noura. And he started thinking, what's this crazy woman doing? I told him, this is Noura, she's my dog. And here I take the passport and I give it to her, to him. And I say, you know, my dog is from Jerusalem and I happen to be her driver. <laughs> and the guy looks at me and doesn't know what to do with me. He said, this woman must be crazy. But believe it or not, Hanan, they allowed me to go to Jerusalem that day. Wow, Saad. Your dog, Noura, is a lucky dog. She received a Jerusalem passport, while many Palestinians struggle for many years to obtain such a document, to obtain a legal ID card. Um, but Noura, Noura did. Now I'm going to take you to the year 2002, um, Israel started to build the segregation wall around the West Bank, literally dividing Palestinian communities and restricting the right of movement uh, for Palestinians. The wall stands eight meters high, twice the height of Berlin Wall. There are watchtowers as well as buffer zones made up of electric fences, cameras, motion sensors, and military checkpoint all around it. Murad, Murad or nothing to lose but your life. My question to you, Suad, is what is the most dangerous trip in your life? This actually, Murad Murad is, uh, Murad is the name of a Palestinian worker. And uh, he came to work with me 
in the garden in Ramallah. And I noticed that this Murad was an amazing laborer, amazing. It's like having five people work in your garden. And when I offer him tea or coffee or anything, he wouldn't eat. And then I said, Murad, for God's sake, you haven't stopped working continuously. Take a break. And then he says, ah, you don't know what the Israelis call me. I said, what do they call you? He said, a bulldozer. I said, why do they call you a bulldozer? He says, because I work like a bulldozer. I love working and I work eight hours continuously. Anyway, I was intrigued, intrigued by this character. And his hand was had a band-aid, he was wounded. And I started talking to him and he told me, uh, you know, I go to, um, even though that the Israelis have built this separation wall, which is eight meters, nothing will stop me from work. And then he started describing to me how the Palestinian workers wake up at two o'clock in the morning and how they start working for three, four hours and how they dangerously cross the uh, wall and how they get arrested, some of them get shot. Um, he was telling me incredible and very moving hardships that even though I live in Ramallah and I follow the news, I really didn't realize how difficult it is for these Palestinian workers to make a living. So again, Salim was abroad, and I contemplated uh, going with them. So after one week of thinking, I would take the newspaper, and then I would read about a worker being shot by the Israelis. Then I say, no, Sohab, you must be crazy. Don't do it. Eventually, one night, he told me that they leave Saturday at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so one Saturday, I decided, that's it, I'm going. Uh, so I put on Salim, some of Salim's clothes. I put my hair up, I put the hat, and I act. I pre pretend to be a man, and I call Muhammad, his brother, and I say, Muhammad, you know what? I'm going to go with Murad and try to get into Israel. And I said, Saad, you must be crazy. You know, it's very dangerous. It's very this, very that. I said, let me try it, you know? Anyway. Muhammad and I, he comes at 11 o'clock at night into Ramallah. We drive to Mazara and Lubani, an hour drive to his village. And his family received me and his mother. He has eight, seven brothers and his father. And they were all thinking, what is this crazy woman? And his mama and Maher, Saad, Habibti, don't do it. It's very dangerous. I hear of stories. I said, Khalas, just I'm going to do it. At, four, at 2 o'clock, 2.30, a bus comes. And I get into the bus with 20 Palestinian workers, 24 actually. And of course, the minute they see me, they realize that I was a woman. So they started asking many questions. They think I am from Al Jazeera or CNN. And they started telling me it was really the most amazing conversation I ever had. Sure enough, the bus drives for two hours and then it stops at four o'clock in the morning and it throws us somewhere out of nowhere. It's dark, I don't see the way, and then they start walking. They start walking under the olive groves, and as you know, our mountains are full of olive groves. So we start walking uh, from Zawiye into another village for almost like an hour. And then all of a sudden, I see them stopping, and Murad, who was leading the way, Murad is 21 years, and when I did the truck, I must have been 55 years old, 
and very heavy and not very athletic. So <laughs> by the time we got two hours, I was like dead. Uh, anyway, I hear uh, Murad screaming and saying the army is there, the army is there. So we hide and it was starting, the lights were starting to come up and I look around me and I see hundreds, hundreds of shades and shadows. They were workers from all other villages. Apparently there was a part of the wall that wasn't built and it was only done out of uh, uh, wire. How do you, um, wires? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we sit there and then we see the army on the other side of the road. And we sit and sit and sit. And I said, what are these workers doing? The army see us, we see the army. And then all of a sudden I hear Murad, Murad says, let's cross the road. There was a highway and we are on one side and the, road, and the soldiers are on the other side. I said, Murad, what are we doing? Are we, are we walking in their direction? He says, yes, there is no other way. We have to climb that mountain. But I said, but they're going to arrest us. He said, Saad, think of it. We are maybe 400 workers. There are two or three soldiers. How many can they arrest? Two, three, four, five, ten. Okay, ten of us will be arrested. The 390 will make it. <laughs> and I said, don't they shoot? He said, sometimes they shoot. And so I was like, really, oh my God, what have I gotten myself? Anyway, I followed them. And some of them ran to the mountains. Another, we went through actually a tunnel, a water tunnel. And the Israelis were shooting, they were arresting. And uh, anyway, I just followed um, Murad. And ultimately we made it to the mountains to the other side, but we were so tired, we had to sit under a tree. At that point, I decided that's it. I am going back. I really don't have a breath. But to my advantage, the Israelis, there was another group of Israelis that stopped some of them. Anyway, Hanan, to make a long story short, a trip that should have taken us 20 minutes took us 18 hours of walking. Wow. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we arrived to Tahtikba where Burad and his workers wanted to work. At that time, we were four. 20 of us were arrested. So that's really, you, you asked me what is the book that uh, affected your life. I always say, what is the book that I wrote and affected my life? Really, Murad Murad is the dearest book to my heart because that trip changed my attitude towards all workers in the world, all refugees, all immigrants. Uh, because every immigrant I see today, whether it's from Africa or from Pakistan or from Afghanistan, they are Murad for me. And I have made such strong relationship with Murad and his friends. We, are, we became friends and I see them up till today, actually. Wow. So that's the story of Murad. And can you tell me why you called it Murad Murad? Why did you... Uh, mention Murad twice, and that's the title. Murad is the name of the guy, the real name of Murad, but it also means the desire, as you, you read from Arabic. So when you have a desire, so it's as if it's Murad's desire is to work. And for me, how can one prevent a person 
from arriving to their work or how can one stop a person whose desire is only work, nothing else. So it's Murad's desire, but it's called Murad Murad uh, for that reason. Wow, amazing story. Um, there's so much to talk about your novels, but I wanna, because of the time, I'm gonna move to Rawak, because Rawak played a big role in your life and you actually are recognized for being the founder of Rawak, an acclaimed nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to uh, restoring the decades old historic stone structures and houses in Palestine. Right. As a founder, what would you consider the ultimate mission of Rawak and what does Rawak mean? Okay, uh, what Rawak means is a gallery. It's the, um, the arcade around this a courtyard. It could be the arcade of a mosque, it could be the arcade in a church, it could be an arcade in a school. But um, that's what Riwak is. And there is in history a school called Riwakiyun. There was a philosopher in the 12th century that used to walk around with his students around the courtyard and uh, he had a special philosophy and uh, for me, it was interesting to uh, call it Riwak, but also Riwak is an architectural element that exists in every single peasant house. So if you say Riwak, every person in Palestine knows what Riwak is. It's not uh, an academic word. So for me, that was important. Now, I must tell you the beginning of Riwak in my life. When I was a little girl, my father always talked about the 420 villages that the Palestinians bulldozer destroyed between 1948 and 1952. And now they are all documented in a book by uh, uh, Professor Walid Khalidi. It's called All That Remains. And for me, and they constituted almost 50% of the villages that existed in 1948. So for me, it was like, how could Israel destroy so many villages? And basically, they did it to prevent the Palestinians from going back home. So when I came to Palestine, I was obsessed with this. And I went around looking at the destroyed villages, but also it was the first time I see Palestine. I went around to see Palestine. And then I decided that, you know, our conflict with Israel really is not a cultural conflict. It's not a religious conflict. It's an occupation. It's, it's about one word, which is the land. And I always said, don't believe the Israelis that they want to make peace unless they stop grabbing our land. As long as they continue to grab our land, which they do every second, it means that. So for me, really, they're trying to change the character or they have managed to, to change the character from an Arab Palestine into a Jewish Palestine. And for me, it was important to protect whatever was remaining from our villages. So when I started the work, the whole purpose was to protect what remains. Uh, so we, I started the organization in 91. And the first thing we did is a national register um, we at Riwak, with the help of many other architects and also with the help of students, we managed to document 50 
thousand buildings, actually fifty thousand three hundred and twenty villages, because you cannot protect if you don't know what you have. And we have managed to publish those. This is a work of ten years. We managed to publish three volumes, and we got to know that we have these fifty thousand. There is something to be protected. And we started deciding that we want to work in the villages because the cities are protected, like Nablus, Hebron. Uh, while the villages are always the rural areas are always just you know nobody asks or cares for them. Anyway, then after we did the national register, we started doing cultural centers. We decided that the best thing is to go and ask the municipality, but also meet with the com local communities and ask them what is it that they need. And some of them would say we need a library, women's center, children's center, music center, name it, all sorts of things, playground for kids. Uh, so at first we did 130 community centers in 130 villages. And some of them are music, for example, Kamanjati. We worked with Kamanjati and we provided seven musical centers. We renovated the whole building. And then we realized that it's not enough to renovate only one building in a historic center, which is destroyed. So in 2007, we started a program called the 50 Villages. We realized that we at Riwa cannot protect everything we have. We have to be very selective. So we listed the 50 villages that have the highest number of historic buildings. And if we protect the 50 villages, we protect 50% of our cultural heritage. So we concentrated on that. And we started renovating the whole historic center. What does that mean? It means that we did the infrastructure, we did electricity, tiling, but also housing for the poor. We did a program called, um, uh, you know, for, for people to renovate their homes. Aone. Aone, it means help one another. Because in the past, when a Palestinian built a house, the whole village came and gave Aone. Uh, so we started telling the people, if you pay, whatever you pay, we pay matching number. And so we started renovating houses for the older people, for the poorer people who are living in the village. And also we did a lot of women's center. And now Rewak has, uh, in the meanwhile, renovated 21 historic centers in Palestine. We still have a long way to go. The challenges are many. Uh, but at least with our capacity, because it's also costly, uh, we have to raise funds all the time, and we managed to do it. Uh, at the beginning, people were not too enthused, but now we have more and more and more and more demands of people asking to renovate their historic centers. But also, we have many more people who are convinced, and really, we have many people who contribute and give us many individuals. Thanks to them, they give us money to do these programs. And I've been to Kamanjati Center, and it looks wonderful. Uh, the one in Ramallah. The one in Ramallah. It looks amazing. And um, you mentioned that challenges and uh, financially, um, what else through the Israeli occupation, let's say, do you face any challenges because of the Israeli occupation 
with their walk? Well, the more the main challenge is movement, Hanan. To be able, because we work in villages from all, from Jenin to uh, Khalil, and the trip between Ramallah and Nablus or Jenin or Khalil should not take us more than one and a half hours, maximum two. But our architects to reach there with the checkpoints that exist take them three to four hours. So most of the time, the architects spend seven, six hours in the road to be able to supervise a project which is like two hours. So movement is the main concern. If Rewaq has succeeded in anything, really in making renovation and restoration a tool for economic and social development. And I don't say that as a cliche, I say it as a reality. If you, Hanan, give me $100, I can assure you that 90% of that money goes to the local community, meaning that the contractor should always hire people from the village. They cannot bring costs. So we train people from the village. We ask the contractor minimum wage. You cannot pay them less than this. You ha- we, we help you train them. We, we train the architects also. Uh, so it had become a job creation. When we changed the concept of conservation from the static point of view into income generating point of view, the community started caring about it because it means their young people get a job they get a community center and the place becomes environmentally upgraded. That's when they started. We had to crack that concept that conservation is not something for the rich. Conservation actually is a job creation for the poor. This takes us back to Murad Murad. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Anand, someone drew my attention. Actually, it wasn't me. It was Fidat Tuma, who is now the... Uh, uh, you know, she's a colleague. She was the director of Rewaq at one point. She's now the Qatam Foundation director. She told me, Saad, whatever you do in Rewaq, you write, uh, you do the same thing. Like you, you do a job creation, then you do Murad. Yeah. And you do a Jerusalem book, then you write uh, Golda slept here. So it's true. It's the same concept. You can do it in different media, whether it's theater, writing, or architecture. Absolutely, everything uh, connects. I'm going to take you um, to Palestine today, and especially in Ramallah, and I'm sure that you are very aware of it. We are a witness to a typical case of settler colonialism. However, the colonization goes um, far beyond physical uh, bonds, like we we explained before. It's not just the uh, land um, that is colonized, but the people as well. This is especially true in the situation of urban expansion, which um, is changing. Um, It's changing the culture heritage, and you mentioned uh, some of that earlier, Um, and changing the uh, village and how it's supposed to look, the city. There's something called the Wabi, and Mm -hmm. it's one example, a new town near Ramallah. That's completely has nothing to do with Palestine or the culture of Palestine. Mm-hmm. We cannot relate in a slightest to the Palestinian Qarya uh, uh, or village, nor the urban Palestinian architecture. 
in many ways, some people said it looks like a settlement, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you have any comments as an architecture, um, any comments on the effect of occupation on the, the culture uh, of Palestine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, have a comment again, I say, unfortunately, you know, in the past, governments were representative of what we called the public or public affairs. Government are supposed to be the watchdog for the private sector. Because the private sector, the main aim of most of the private sectors, even when they do sometimes like social commitment or uh, you know they allocate some of their money for uh, um, social use, in general, the private sector is interested in how much money they make in a project. And it should be the government who dictates how the public should be protected from the private sector, because the private sector doesn't really, this servicing the public is not the first item on their agenda and maybe and certainly not the last. In other words, they could cut a tree not caring whether you are in a green city or not. Um, now, the problem with municipalities and the government in Palestine, they are so much in need of money and budgets that they sometimes even allow people to do illegal things because if they do something illegal, they end up paying a fine. What I'm trying to say is the following, that neither the municipalities, unfortunately, nor the government is concerned with the people. Whether Suad has a, a sidewalk to walk in or whether the city is green, whether there is a playground, whether this child is safe walking in the street, they don't really pay any attention to it. They represent now more the private sector. And the Rawabi is, something, is, is an example. Rawabi is an example where the government stood with the private sector. I guess the owners, is to start with the owners who own the land. They were dictated to them how much, you know, when you have a land, you have the right to sell it a million dollars or one dollar. But it was the government of Palestine, the Palestinian Authority, who interfered and said this land costs 15000 and everybody was forced to accept this or lose their land. So at the very beginning, the, the government has always been representing the private sector, which is not the role of government as far as I'm concerned. Second, I think that you know the problem was um, Rawabi is it's far fetched, you know, like there is there Sudan and many villages that could have benefited if they were if they were renovated, if they were improved in Ramallah, the same thing. So anyway, it's a private sector with Qatari money who decided, you know, they make money, they don't care. They don't care. Not only Rawabi, but I can tell you all the buildings in Ramallah. For example, even Amman is not the most beautiful city, but at least you know, you have areas where you have zoning A, B, C. A, B, C, which is not the Israeli A, B, C, but the zoning within the city, in which you allocate area for commerce, area for shopping, area for villas. In Palestine, they have made everything gym. Gym, it means you can build as much as you want, as high as you want. Now, whether there is elevator, whether there is enough water, whether the kids can 
uh, get into an uh, elevator that doesn't have electricity, all of this. And I can tell you with two days of rain in the West Bank, in Palestine, in the last week, I should show you photos of how we ended up with pools, with floods. Uh, so this is what, uh, what is for me uh, incredible that we don't really care about the, the community what is good for us as a community, but each individual is caring about their own interest and the government encourages that. That's unfortunate. A small town like uh, Ramallah that was a small town became a inner city ghetto, a big refugee look like. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Also, you know, like no public transport, if there is anything interesting. Now in Ramallah, you have a traffic jam, you know, it's like, I can assure you, I am not a traffic transport, but if you have a tramway or if you have buses uh, that can bring people in and out and walk a little bit, because people have always walked in our part of the world, not uh, not to bring in the car. Anyway, I mean, the, the again, there are no laws that protect the community and the shared values of a community. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Saad Al-Amri as much as I did. Thank you, Arab Voices, for making this podcast possible. Until next time, salam. What you just heard was part two of the interview Arab Voices guest host Hanan Awad conducted with Dr. Saad Al-Amri, a Palestinian architect, writer, community leader, and founding director of Rewaq, the Center for Architectural Conservation in Ramallah, Palestine. Last week, I aired part one of that interview, and you can listen to it on our website, arabvoices.net. Thank you, Hanan. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. On March 4, 2022, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy, co-hosted their annual Israel Lobby Conference. The 2022 conference, Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad Conference, brought together people from across the country and the world to critically assess the pro-Israel lobby and the U.S. government's unflinching support for Israel. There were several incredible speeches given by activists, artists, journalists, lawyers, politicians, and others. I'm going to air now the remarks delivered by Paul Norsi with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights on the topic the victorious battle for the First Amendment against Virginia's anti-boycott bill. The voice you will hear first is that of Grant Smith with the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy, and one of the conference organizers, introducing Paul Norsi. Let's listen in. The first speaker, Paul Norsi, is co-president of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, um, the other president, who uh, is also you know, a magnificent leader of that organization, Nancy Ween, are two of the most effective leaders of an organization that is winning, winning, winning. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. Paul's been active with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights since its founding. 
uh, in 2016, he's active in a lot of other organizations working for peace and justice in the Middle East, Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace, New Dominion PAC, the Arab, uh, excuse me, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, uh, the Arab American Democratic Caucus of Virginia. Uh, so he is a super activist who has lived and traveled extensively in the Middle East, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon. So uh, with that, we're going to move to Paul Norsey. Thanks very much, Grant. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for being here. This is a really great conference. I'm really honored and uh, happy to be here. Um, so yeah, in, in Virginia this year, there was another attempt to pass a bill that would basically suppress free speech by um, carving out an exception to the First Amendment in Virginia against Palestinian human rights activists or anyone who speaks out for Palestinian rights or criticizes Israel. Basically, it was House Bill 1161, HB 1161. It was called the, quote, Virginia Public Procurement Act required contract provisions prohibition on participation in boycott of Israel. So it was carving out an exception for Israel from the First Amendment of our Constitution. And they've tried this before, actually, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. This bill uh, would have required all public bodies to include in every contract of more than $10,000 provisions to, quote, to prohibit, quote, participation in a boycott of Israel, its instrumentalities, or any of its territories while engaged in commercial activities pursuant to the terms of the contract. Those same provisions are passed on to, quote, every subcontract or purchase order of more than $10,000. So the provisions would have been binding on all, all subcontractors and vendors. So this is clearly unconstitutional. It punishes, it, it, it selects, uh, uh, businesses that do business with the go state government based on their political views. So we felt like we had to oppose it. It was important to oppose. And I did mention there were previous attempts to do the same thing. So th there have been three previous direct legislative attempts to do something like this. There's been one indirect attempt, and um, there appears to be a fifth attempt brewing out of the state governor's office right now that we're tracking, and I'll tell you a little bit about each of these. But they, they, these attempts, and they, they're basically being propagated all over the country. They've passed in, I think, over 30 states already. They're unconstitutional, so when they've been challenged in courts, they've been defeated. But, you know, who wants to go to court? It, it shouldn't be passed in the first place. Uh, th there's two varieties of these attempts to suppress uh, advocacy for Palestinian rights. And one is to, like HB 1161, it just punishes people and organizations that participate in BDS, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. The other uh, method they use uh, is to brand criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. And so they're, they've tried both in Virginia, and they've, they're still trying both. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, the previous attempts that started all the way back in 2016, and that's when uh, Vir the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights originally started, was to oppose that original attempt, which was, at the time, it was called House Bill 1282. 
and it was pretty much identical to HB 1161. So they just kind of pulled it from the shelf this year and, and reintroduced it. But back in, um, in 2016, based on our opposition, mem- members of, the, um, of our coalition, which at the time wasn't called Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, but the same group of people, we opposed it. We went and met with members of the General Assembly and, um, and attended committee meetings, et cetera. And, and in an effort to pass it, despite the, once you, sh- once you shine a light on it, it becomes very obvious that it's unconstitutional. And, and a lot of General Assembly members would have, would have voted for it without really knowing what it is. Just, you know, oh yeah, I know that guy. He's, he's introducing a bill. He voted for my bill. I'll vote for his and they don't even really pay attention to it. So once you shine attention on it and you show that it's unconstitutional, people start, General Assembly members start having second thoughts. So because of that, in 2016, they, cha- they amended the bill two or three times. It ultimately devolved into just creating basically a blacklist of uh, companies and people that are involved in boycotts and divestment. And even that failed ultimately, but that's what it devolved into. And an important point to note is when, when they amended it to be a, basically a blacklist, they assigned the blacklist to be kept by an organization which many of us didn't know even existed within state government called the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. So, and needless to say, like Grant mentioned, based on that, we ended up following up and finding out a lot more about that and Gene and Gene will talk a little more about their activities later, but um, so other attempts uh, in Virginia also uh, back in 2016, there was actually, in addition to a bill, there was a resolution. Now, a resolution isn't a law. It's just it's kind of a statement of the sense of the assembly. And it, so that same year, they, there was a re- resolution HJ 177 in 2016, and it was, quote, expressing the sense of the general assembly in condemning the Israel, the anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, unquote. This was basically a deceitful diatribe of hatred against peaceful BDS human rights movement. Uh, but it was just a statement and it had no legal impact, uh, but it did pass. In 2017, um, there was a bill called HB 2261 introduced, and that would have redefined anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel using the IHRA definition, which is a very questionable definition of anti-Semitism. And of course, anti-Semitism is a bad thing. We all oppose anti-Semitism and it's illegal in Virginia. So if that bill had passed and anti-Semitism was defined to include criticism of Israel, then legitimate political criticism would have become illegal. So we opposed it. And by the way, also in 2016, the ACLU, um, American Civil Liberties Union, Virginia, published letters opposing HB 1282 in 2016 and HB 2261 in uh, 2017. So that leads me to the, um, the current year. There, we, there's HB 1161, which has been defeated. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how we defeated it. But also there's a current executive order issued on day one of our new Republican governor's first day in office. He issued executive order number eight, 
uh, called the establishing the commission to combat anti-semitism and in that executive order it stipulates that they should use the ihra definition of anti-semitism so it doesn't bode well it's just a commission at this point and we're hoping that it won't go off the cliff in the wrong direction attacking free speech but it's not a good start to start with that definition. Um, so we'll be watching it very closely and opposing it if it, if it attempts to in, in, um, insert any uh, anti-free speech measures into state law. So who backs this kind of legislation? Well, starting in 2009, the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs and Public Diplomacy was the original Israeli government ministry responsible for leading their international campaign against BDS human rights, against the BDS human rights movement and had a budget of tens of millions of dollars a day from way back then. So that was 2009 and by 2014 there were already legislations all over the country and various state legislatures basically trying to suppress uh, BDS. In Virginia, in 2016 through 2018, uh, HB 1282, HJ177, and HB 2261, which I just told you about, were all strongly supported by the Virginia Israel Advisory Board and the Jewish Community Relations Councils of Virginia. We suspect there was also support from national groups like APAC, but we don't have direct evidence of that. The HB 1161 this year was introduced by Delegate John McGuire, who is a delegate aspiring to go to Congress, who attended the pro-Trump rally on January 6, 2021, but denies participating in the subsequent attack on Capitol Hill. Uh, we had not, we have not seen any indication that the JCRCs lobbied in support of HB 1161. So I suspect that Delegate McGuire just pulled it off the shelf to attract APAC affiliated contributions to his political war chest. Um, Executive Order Number 8, on the other hand, the um, Combating Anti-Semitism Commission using the IHRA definition, appears to be strongly supported by the JCRCs and again also possibly APAC and APAC affiliates. At any rate, all of these attempts are clearly unconstitutional and antithetical to human rights, and that's why we're opposing them and lobbying against them. So I'll just take a few minutes to talk about how we uh, oppose them. Um, first, it was important to keep track of the bills that come up in, in the General Assembly. It's not easy to keep track of them. In Virginia, there's um, an, a very useful tool called Lobbyist in the Box. It's actually on the General Assembly website and you could sign up and it'll give you alerts for keywords and things like that. So we, we tracked that and uh, we were able to discover it as soon, it was, as soon as it was introduced. And then we, we, we researched it. This was very easy research. It was very clear to us that it was almost exactly the same as the bill that had been introduced in, in um, 2016. So it, was, it wasn't hard to figure out that it was unconstitutional and all the same arguments that we leveraged in 2016 were applicable again this year. After that, we developed clear talking points 
and a one-sheet position paper from Virginia Coalition for Human Rights. We also reached out to the American Civil Liberties Union of Virginia, and they published a letter which they distributed to all the members of the, of the committee uh, in the General Assembly that was going to first hear, hear the bill. Uh, we also got a letter from Palestine Legal, and they had seven other groups, including Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, ADC, and others co-signing. So we generated a lot of publicity and attention to it. That's, that's important because, again, if, if nobody knows about it, people will just vote for it without really knowing what it is. So, and once it was in committee, we monitored the agenda of the committee. It was, I think, the General Laws Committee in the House of Delegates. And they publish their agenda, usually the afternoon before they meet. And they met, I think, every Tuesday and Thursday this year. So Monday afternoon or Wednesday afternoon, we'd look at their agenda to see if this bill was on the agenda. And when, when it did come up on the agenda, we showed up in force. We had more than 10 people. I think we had close to 15 people ready to testify against it. Now, leading up to that, before, before it went to committee, we also got help from the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and Jewish Voice for Peace. We sent out action alerts. People sent emails. We created our own action alert that we had people write their own emails to, to their General Assembly members. Uh, so we got a lot of attention against this, pointing out that it was wrong and we would want them to vote against it. Um, when it did come up on the agenda of the General Rules Committee, like I said, we were there, probably about 15 of us. In addition to being there to testify in person, we also made comments on the website of the agenda. And this year, by the way, everything was virtual. Well, not everything, but every, everything was available virtually. So 15 of us might have been there on Zoom, and there were three of us that were actually there in person. Um, and so that, you know, so altogether we had probably over 15 people ready to testify in person or on Zoom. And I think based on that, for whatever reason, when it came up on the agenda, it was, quote, passed by. So they didn't, they basically put it aside. I think it was because they saw there was so much, so many people there ready to testify against it. You know, I mean, for one thing, they don't want to, you know, waste, uh, you know, if they give each person a minute, that's 15, 20 minutes of a one hour meeting, you know, they don't want their meeting to go on forever. And it was clearly unconstitutional and, and you know, knowing that, it, it's not a battle they wanted to have. So I think for those reasons, it was just dropped and it was never picked up again this year. So it, in that way, it was defeated. And, and I'd add one more thing that we, we've been doing every year, and I recommend doing this in every state, is have a coalition like this that just has a day or two where you go to the General Assembly or by Zoom calls and have meetings and advocate for things that are important. And we had already planned that from December, really, that we were gonna have an advocacy day, or days in this case, two days, Thursday and Friday, where we set up a bunch of meetings. We, had, uh, we, met, we, we ended up meeting with 30 members of the General Assembly to let them know that we're against this bill in this case. And, and we had those meetings, we were already planning them before we even heard about the bill. But anyway, that's in a nutshell how we defeated it. And I think I'll end here.
and later we can answer questions if we need to. Thank you. What you just heard were the remarks delivered by Paul Norsey with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights on the topic, the victorious battle for the First Amendment against Virginia's anti-boycott bill. He delivered those remarks at the 2022 annual Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad conference held in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 2022, co-hosted by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. For more information on that conference, visit www.israellobbycon.org. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. Show your support for KBU programming by picking up the special limited edition KBU Music That Moves You silicone collapsible water bottle. It's the perfect accessory to keep you hydrated while KBU keeps you moving. Get yours now at kboo.fm 